0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate and, in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco.
2: Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the show and a good Tuesday morning to post Labor Day. Hopefully, everybody had a great Labor Day weekend. It's hard to believe that we have finished the summer season. I mean, it's still warm. Temperature is going to be in the 90s today, but um, officially the season's over. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and you are listening to Good Morning New York here on the Voice America Network. I'm joined today by Jason Meister, who is co hosting with me this morning. Jason has been here before, and I'm happy to have him back on Good Morning New York. Jason is vice president of the Capital Markets Group for Abison Young, and he is also a frequent contributor to Fox Business News for Everything Real Estate. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Vince. Thanks for having me. All right. So, should you sell your apartment first before you buy your next one? And what do you do when your broker tries to talk to you into selling? Talks you into selling? Are you getting the best deal? Well, we're going to get to that. Get to that with my panel later in the program. But first, we're talking to a huge name in real estate development world here in New York City. His name is Jeff Levine, and he is chairman and principal of three affiliated companies: Levine Builders, Douglaston Development, and Clinton Management. He oversees the new construction or rehabilitation of thousands of rental and condo properties, including many affordable housing units, and has built or renovated millions of square feet of commercial space. He is currently developing the edge in Williamsburg Greenpoint along the waterfront. This is considered one of the most ambitious mixed-use waterfront developments to rise in the city, and if approved, will become Brooklyn's largest residential LEED certified green community. Jeff, good morning, and thanks for being here with Jason and myself.
3: Good morning. It's my pleasure to join you.
2: So, listen, before we get to the edge, I'd like to ask you about your background a little bit and your rise to one of the top, if not the top spots in the development world. Um, Where did you grow up and where are you living today?
3: Well, I had the good fortune to being born here in Brooklyn, New York, um, where I grew up with my parents and three siblings. I attended New York City public schools while moving from Brooklyn to Queens, ultimately attended City College School of Architecture. While I was attending School of Architecture primarily at night, I also had the good fortune to have friends whose fathers were in various construction-related businesses. I worked for N&L Concrete during the summers of my high school, and ultimately for a developer or contractor by the name of Herb Mandel, who was pioneering the J51 tax abatement regulations using the concessions to create rental housing and rehabilitations down in the West Village and uh, up on the east side. So while going to school at night, I had the opportunity to work in the field of construction, which really gave me a great education for my future business, which was ultimately, after having gotten my degree from City College Architecture, I was able to um, start a contracting business on my own, my contracting work led to participation in developments with other developers who like to take advantage of my ability to build in-house so i became an already partners with a number of other developers and then ultimately i was able to expand my business from contracting to being the senior partner in development projects most often by making applications to city programs the vacant building program the participation loan program all done through both HPD and then ultimately the new housing partnership programs, where I was able, with very little equity, which fortunately I had very little equity, to expand my development capabilities and my construction capabilities, doing larger and larger projects, because the banks were eager to lend into these type of projects. The city was anxious to have capable developers participate in them. And I grew my business through those opportunities, ultimately going more towards the private sector, as I saw that that's where financial gain was more opportune.
2: Jeff, let's let's go back a little bit. Um, and, and so you grew up in Brooklyn, you were with your siblings, you said, were you close with your family in those days prior I'm, to, I guess, going to college?
3: Oh, I was close and I am close. I'm, I'm thrilled to tell you, I just spent the Labor Day weekend with my parents, my father, God bless him, 83, recovering from surgery, was here with my mother, 81, and nice. my sisters and brother as well.
2: <clears throat> so you went to school and you, wanted, you studied architecture, as you said. Did you want to be an architect when you graduated school, or did you kind of just, you know, it, it's a really change very,
3: of... The answer to that question is really quite funny. So I was attending school for architecture because, you know, I was a nice Jewish boy. I needed to have a degree dying on the wall for my parents' sake. Exactly. And the fact of the matter is I enjoyed architecture very much, and just like my construction background, it gave me a, a great – you know resource and asset to go forward in my career but when i finished city college i was working for Herb mandela developer as an assistant construction super earning the grand sum of three hundred dollars a week right my father was a cab driver at the time and i think he was earning about as much as i was having said that in order for me to pursue my license as an architect In addition to having to take exams post my graduation, I required an an apprenticeship in a licensed architectural firm where I would have had the privilege of working about 80 hours for about $150 a week. So it didn't take me long to figure out that twice the money for half the hours, I'll stay in construction. Thank you very much.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So... You know, you, you were in construction, you stayed in construction for a bit. So how did you transition then over to the development side? What was the progression there from construction to development? What were you thinking and what what did you see as the future?
3: It was a very natural progression. Um, ultimately, as I said, I had worked for fellows who were developers in the construction end of the business. I viewed the development end from a distance and then there were a number of developers uh, who were somewhat older than I was who did, did not necessarily want to keep their hands in the brick and mortar anymore. Right. Uh, you know, construction can sometimes be a tough business. You're subject to the vagaries of the marketplace, the weather conditions. It's still the last frontier. I mean, we try to make everything as safe as we can. We adhere to all the regulations. But there's inherent danger when working with heavy weights at high heights. Having said that, Um, a lot of these older developers saw an opportunity to take their you know boots out of the mud let me step in and do the actual construction Um, initially I did it for them as a contractor and then ultimately uh, in order to maintain the relationship I was given minority participations in a number of developments watching development from inside I got another education and I was able to take advantage of what I had learned to start my own development projects, and in many cases, as I said, work through various city programs to do my own developments, both in the affordable housing and then ultimately in the market housing areas.
4: So, Jeff, uh, it's Jason. I, I'd like to hear a little bit from you on where you think the market is, these, the, the current market conditions. Also, you know, where is the residential condo market going over the next few years? Uh, where, where, where are interest rates going? So talk, to a, talk to us a little bit about that.
3: Sure. Well, in order to be a developer, you know, I've said this before, you have to be a cockeyed optimist. Because if you don't believe that the economy is going to be in good shape, that interest rates are going to be in a reasonable area, that the demand is going to be great, it's hard to embark upon a journey that you start with uh, buying a piece of property, getting the thing approved, and building it for two years. And then three years from the day you thought of it, You have to hit the market, and you hope it's where you wanted it to be three years ago when you conceived of the project. You know, I like to say that we are really just investment bankers who have a day job to place our bets by building buildings. Having said that, um, I guess my state of mind right now would be more compared to Chicken Little. I have never seen land prices in my 40 years in the business move up this precipitously property which was available for purchase for two hundred dollars a foot just three or four short years ago is now trading it closer to a thousand a foot. Um people are embarking on development projects for sale where, you know, twenty five hundred dollars a square foot seems to be the uh the bar that you need to cross in order to conceive of the project. Mm-hmm. I question in my own mind just how many buyers exist at the levels um, that are required to buy apartments at that level. Three or four years ago, not only was there no construction financing, but there was no end-loan financing. Now we find ourselves in an abundance of both. Uh, End-loans are more available, and construction loans have been made available much like they were, in my opinion, back in 05 and 06 and 07 when novice developers were being given, you know, 60, 65% of uh, construction cost financing, um, raising the rest of the equity either through private syndication and or um, private equity, people like Lehman and others of that nature. So I think we've kind of seen this movie before. We've only had roughly 5,000 units a year created during this downturn from, say, 7 till 12 We're back to the twenty-five, thirty thousand 30,000 units a year of construction. I think that we've seen the huge rise in values uh, precipitated by the fact that there was very little supply created as a result of the downturn and the economic malaise that followed the downturn. And I think that the economy seemed to recover before the financing came back. So there are people who have been either making money in the markets or in their business, ventures, corporations, whatever the case may be, and they have overpowered with their demand the supply that existed. But I think people fail to see on the everyday level that family creation ceased to exist during the downturn, you know, just like the Depression in the 30s, our Great Recession saw people delay getting married, delay getting ma- having children, Um, And I think that the demand that would have been here, had they done this, um, might have helped this market sustain itself. But I think that demand is going to be retarded for a few years while these people finally decide to get married, have children, or just say, I don't want to live with my parents anymore and start to buy again. So I'm a little bit concerned that we got ahead of ourselves right here.
2: Um, All right. We're going to go to break, uh, Jeff, but we'll be right back. Uh, First, you're listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away.
1: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Visit Blue Realty Group.com. That's BLU Realty Group.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at
2: bluerealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. We're back with Jeff Levine, um, who is chairman and principal of three affiliate companies, as we mentioned before, Levine Builders. Douglaston Development and Clinton Management, and I'm here with my co-host, Jason Meister. Jeff, um, you were just talking about land values before the commercial.
4: Uh, I want to – you also talked about household formations, uh, young uh, millennials getting married and pushing that decision off. And obviously, New York City is a little bit different of an animal. But talking about the greater housing market uh, of the U.S. housing market, if if millennials and, and uh, younger generations were – Historically, forty percent of existing home sales. What what's your take on who's going to fill that gap? I mean, you can't just extract that forty percent of the share of the market and have a healthy housing uh, recovery. So, if there's a lot of talk about foreign buyers, Chinese buyers, Russians, but who's who's going to fill that gap? Well, Who do you, you think? you is-
3: have to realize, Jason. You have to realize those foreign buyers are not buying what I'll call commodity housing. They're buying uber luxury. They're buying prime addresses. They're basically hiding money in the United States. Those right. buyers, I don't know how many oligarchs or you know Chinese billionaires exist that can buy forty-five and fifty million dollars, or even ten or fifteen million dollar apartments. But so far, again, they seem to be coming out of the woodwork, as we've seen at you know Gary Barnett's X one fifty-seven. Um, but you have a number of new projects coming on the market as we speak at that Uber luxury level, including McLeod's Drake. Um, you have Wernado is doing a wonderful new job over on 57th Street as well. So there are a number of projects where they're talking about three and four and five thousand dollars a square foot as the entry price. I can't profess to know where that's going to go, but I am concerned about it. I guess as world unrest continues to accelerate, more and more foreigners want to place money on the safe haven of the United States, and I guess that's a good thing. But where, what I call commodity luxury buyers, product that used to sell Back in the early part of 2000, at a peak of 12 or 1300 dollars, the new entry points become, as I said, over 2000 dollars, and that's very disconcerting. So I'm concerned as that product, which is now coming to market, hits, that there won't be enough of the millennial type buyers or the user buyers. Right. I look as an example to what's happening in the suburbs outside of New York City. If you look at the areas of Nassau County, Westchester over in New Jersey, areas that are bedroom communities where people used to go upon getting married and having children for the public education systems of these districts. Those houses, partially due to insane tax levels that have been allowed to raise through the years, are just not selling. If you talk to any residential sales broker in those suburbs, there's just no buyers. So it's a little bit disconcerting.
4: It sounds like there's a tale of two markets to some degree. I mean, there's the Uber luxury market that these foreigners are buying, and then there's the real inexpensive housing. But the, so that middle is not is not there.
3: Absolutely. And if you take a look at the rest of the country, areas like Phoenix, like Vegas, areas that were growth towns prior to this great recession, the overbuilding which occurred. Has still not completely been swallowed up and while there has been a recovery it's a recovery to levels that don't match where anywhere near where they were previously so you know I think the housing market still has a lot of healing to do and the housing market heals based upon really two major factors one is the economy we need to continue to have a healthier economy with more job creation uh, a little inflation won't hurt because frankly speaking, as soon as we start to see inflation, people become concerned that housing prices will go up, mortgage rates will go up, and they'll be priced out of the market forever. In addition to which, as we started to allude to earlier, the demographics are key to the housing market. You know, in addition to, uh, doing a number of rentals in New York City right now, which is the, my preference is to do rentals because In the event that this economy does peter out and people are no longer in a position to pay these prices for these condominiums, they have really no choice if they want to live near their work in this New York City job market than to pursue rental properties. And areas, as you started to allude to earlier, like Williamsburg, like West Chelsea, are the choice of the demographic of people who are making their housing decisions at this time, young people who are engaged In the industries of New York, be they everything from you know the new, the fashion, and the media, all of those
2: cultural sort of things. That's correct. So this is Vince uh, Jeff. Let's talk about the Edge a little bit. Phase one was a huge success, and I think sales started at as little as seven hundred per foot and went as high as twelve hundred per foot, but the average being between eight hundred and fifty and nine hundred. The competition at the time was averaging around six forty per foot. How did you succeed with the sellout of phase one? I mean, obviously very successful. We, what was it about the the project that was so...
3: Well, we, uh, built, we built a project at a location in Williamsburg <laughs> that was the A-plus location. Um, if you know Williamsburg at all, mm-hmm. we, we were yes. on the waterfront, North 5th and North 7th Street, just three short blocks to the L train. And again, transportation to commutation for work is always the key. In addition to which, we were in the north side of Williamsburg, which is where Basically, the community transformed of its own volition, being an artist community, having people who had been priced out of Manhattan initially relocating there, creating the types of cafes and restaurants and galleries that people aspire to be near. Um, And with that artistic community, followed the business community. Um, And we still think that that is the best part of Williamsburg in that market. Again, the product, you asked how we could achieve our goals. The product that we built there was unusual for Brooklyn. We raised the bar in terms of finishes. We went with acrylic lacquered cabinets. We went with engineered wood floors. Um, you know, we went with the water source heat pumps for heating and cooling. We did the sort of things that the Brooklyn market had not really seen before.
2: The product was spectacular. I remember seeing it and showing it many times. Where, where are you in phase two and where are you priced foot in phase two. Oh, well,
3: well, take a step back for a moment. As I indicated to you earlier, I believe that the rental market is the place where a developer who wants a better future wants to be right now. So we have just completed, or are in the process of completing, another building in Williamsburg, which was a piece we picked up during the downturn adjacent to the edge. It was the third piece of the Northside Piers development where we just com- are completing a 40-story, 509-unit rental property, uh, which we had anticipated coming out somewhere in the location of about $60 a square foot, um, meaning your studio would be somewhere in the vicinity of uh, $2,800. Your one-bedroom somewhere around $3,400, two-bedroom upwards of $4,200, and we're expecting to have great success there. With regard to the third phase of the edge, you may recall that during the downturn, in order to activate the waterfront, we brought in a group and created the Schmorgasburg over in Williamsburg on a one-acre, 40,000-square-foot piece, which is in the front of the edge. It really was almost a, uh, a cultural phenomenon. People came not only from all around the city via boat, via bicycle, via subway, via car, uh, but from all around the country. Um, I can go internationally, and people are familiar with uh, Schmorgersburg and the Edge. But having said that, we are now, we actually just closed um, with uh, Cap One as our construction lender. AIG and McFarlane are acting as our equity again, and we're going to build another 40-story rental um, of approximately 550-some-odd units uh, with the same level of finishes and amenity that you saw at the edge, which we also thought was so important to this uh, millennial generation, which wants to have a home which is also a resort. So we're very excited about the 1,100 units or so of rental housing that we are in the process of delivering to the Williamsburg waterfront.
4: That's great. Jeff, it's Jason again. I, uh, there's this migration to South Williamsburg now. You, you see what's going on. Well, Lentis, um, Elliot Spitzer apparently last week put into contract about a 600-plus-thousand-square-foot foot eighty twenty 20 uh, at the Ketum Winery, what used to be the Ketum Winery site on the water. Uh, where do you see those prices? Where do you think the market is in that South Williamsburg area?
3: Well, the South Williamsburg area has not evolved to the degree that the North Williamsburg area has, but that's not to say it won't. I sincerely believe that in the hands of the Walentis family, that the Domino Sugar Plant will be a phenomenal project. I think their efforts in the architecture speak for itself. They have a proven track record of successfully developing projects. So I'm looking forward to that, only enhancing the waterfront greater. And as that continues to move the center of all that's happening on the waterfront to the south, I think ultimately everybody will be successful on the waterfront.
2: Jeff, what are your thoughts on, you know, these iconic buildings that have gone up over the years like 15 CPW or 157 West 57th Street? I mean, where in your mind do they play in this town? You talked earlier about, you know, the foreign buyers are really buying the uber wealthy places. Is this what these two buildings are about or is it more in 432 Park, right? 432 well, Park. Exactly. I think
3: the different, obviously 432 Park has not become clear as to who the buyers are and, you know, what the story there is going to be. But I think 15 Central Park West is a different story altogether. Um, Zach Dorf did an incredible job creating uh, a once-in-a-lifetime project adjacent to Central Park. And at that time, I don't believe we had the influx of international buyers that we have now. I think that many of the buyers at 15 Central Park West were of a homegrown nature. It became the it address of New York City, uh, much like I think it was 515 Park Avenue became... The, it address for homegrown buyers previously, so I think every project creates its own identity depending where and why and what. I'm mean, you seeing right now Steve Whitkoff downtown um, on Charles Street is creating a location that doesn't appeal to foreign buyers at all, but it is the place that uh, the baby boom generation who uh, are no longer satisfied living say on the Upper West Side or the Upper East Side for that matter want to have a new chic home um, next to the type of wonderful gourmet, you know, small restaurants that West Village is known for. And you're seeing an influx of a particular type of buyer there. Um, So we'll see as it goes forward who's buying
2: where. Where are the opportunities right now for developers such as yourself? I mean, you've, you've you know laid out um, some groundwork of, of things that you're involved in, but where where you know, other developers? Where are the opportunities today, given the cost of land, you know, given the the the, the sparsity of, of opportunities? Where where are developers today? Well,
3: obviously, development has been moving out from the core of the city where prices have become very expensive other than the boutique condo jobs. Remember, most developers, you're no longer seeing projects like The Edge, where a developer will do a 600 or a 400 unit condominium because, getting back to the concept that we as developers only investment bankers betting on the future state of the economy, these projects take too long to be absorbed and they go through various economic cycles. And if you haven't been reading the papers over these last 10 years, the economic cycles seem to have become far more fast and furious. They're affected by global events. They're affected by all sorts of things. So having said that, where do I like? Obviously, there are still some opportunities in places like West Chelsea. I think you may recall that I have done a number of projects in West Chelsea with great success, both condominium and rental. We're actually in the process of pursuing a variance for a large project adjacent to Related's West Side Yards project, which is going to be a game-changer in the far west side of Manhattan. The fact that you're going to have millions of square feet of office, thousands of jobs, in addition to Coach, we have Time Warner coming down there. I think that area, if you can create rental Mm -hmm. housing, will be phenomenal. Also, as an opportunity for these smaller condominiums, I think there will be great values created down there. Other than that, I still like the Brooklyn-Queenside of the East River providing you can buy the property properly because what some developers don't realize when you're doing waterfront development, you have all sorts of issues to deal with having to do with the piers, the bulkheads, the utilities. Much of this property has never been developed to this magnitude and requires you know, literally millions upon millions of dollars of additional infrastructure costs
4: Public public esplanades, right. Exactly, that
3: you don't have when you're simply building a block.
4: We're just wrapping up, Jeff. Sorry. No problem. (laughs) Uh, No, no. There's a lot. You could go on and on about the waterfront.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Listen, Jeff, I want to say thank you to you for joining us today, and hopefully you'll come back and visit with us again. On the other side of the break, everybody, we'll come back with a panel to talk about two hot topics. We'll be right back.
1: Visit Blue Realty Group.com. That's BLU Realty Group.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at com. Now, back to the show.
2: All right, everybody, we're back, and I'm here with my panel, Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential, Parul Brumbat from CORE. Rachel Altshuler from Douglas Elliman, now Lundgren from Dalian Real Estate, and Jason Meister is here uh, from Abison Young. Young, excuse yep. me, <laughs> I'm all tongue-tied this morning. So, should you sell your your property first before you buy your next, or uh, when a broker tries to talk you into selling, are you sure you're getting the right deal? So. The unfortunate trade-off of being a seller in a seller's market is that often you wind up being a buyer as well, and this is particularly tricky when you're in the market for a pricier apartment. Well, while a host of personal factors will go into this decision, our experts recommend that you sell first or at least line up a buyer, even if you don't close on the deal before you seriously bid on the new apartment. So in this competitive and inventory-starved market, is it best to go to contract on your current home and then proceed with the purchase, guys? What's the thought on that?
0: I think in any market it is because, let's say you're buying a co-op. The co-op you're purchasing is going to want to make sure you have the equity to afford it. And if you show them a signed contract, then they have that comfort level that, okay, this is
2: going through. Well, let me ask you this. So um, no seller is going to go into contract depending a contingent rather, on the sale of your home. Why is that? So I come out and I start buying. I'm a buyer. I'm out there looking. I want to buy an apartment You know, that's a million five. I'm selling one that's a million two. But I didn't sell mine yet. But I really want to put an offer in on the new one because you know what? The inventory is depleted. The market is hot. I don't want to lose the opportunity. But my broker is telling me that they're not going to do a deal contingent upon the sale of my current apartment. Why is that? What's, what's the problem with that?
4: The seller doesn't have security that 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 there's a deal on the table because you still have to make a deal happen for your uh, your property. So I don't think that the security is there. Even if it's a strong market, they don't need a, they, they they have plenty of buyers probably looking at that apartment that don't have a contingency.
2: But the thing
5: they're what, what you're asking the seller to do is to invest sixty to ninety, maybe more, uh, maybe in the height of the market as well, a spring or fall market to go with a buyer where there is no assurance that they will be able to move forward. So it's a big thing to ask for the seller. I have gotten it done before, um, but it's really hard. If you if you actually own a condo, it's a lot easier to get a seller to accept the offer yeah. versus the co-op.
2: You know, I'm playing yeah. devil's advocate. Obviously, I know the answer to these questions. But, you know, for the listening audience out there who doesn't necessarily understand the the New York marketplace, you know, the sellers today really have... Their pick of buyers because there are so many buyers out there, not a lot of uh, you know, inventory to, to, to purchase. So why the fear? I mean you know, if I were presented with, an, uh, with a deal, you know, somebody has got to sell their apartment to go into contract with mine, the new one, I'd be sort of like, well, maybe that's not such a bad idea. He or she will sell that apartment ultimately and probably in a short period of time. But there's still great fear about that. Why?
6: Well, when, you were dealing well, with, um, the, when you're dealing it, with co-ops, you know, anything can happen. You know I mean and they can get board rejected, and that that is not secure and from the uh, seller's standpoint, that's more risky than somebody who's purchasing uh, from out of town who's all cash that you know wants to wrap it up ASAP and that's you know up to the seller to
4: to weigh those options That's right, think about it it's really mm-hmm. the seller is now selling two apartments, not really one apartment because they're selling their apartment they're selling and they're really selling your apartment because they they
2: need your apartment to sell in order to sell theirs. Yeah, the, from a financing perspective, the easiest and least stressful scenario is to sell first. Obviously, get pre-qualified from the bank for a new mortgage and go from there. Even rent while you're looking for your next home. Why is this such an ordeal for sellers who become buyers? You know, I once, once uh, several times, I have recommended to sellers that they do a short-term rental in the interim until they are able to close on their their sell and then close on their buy, or at least identify and find a buy. But, you know, some sellers, you know, say this is a problem and I don't want to do this. Why, why does this become a problem for the short-term rental period? What is the angst there?
5: The time, the stress, and the money of, of doing a short-term rental uh, is probably why most won't do that. Um, the, the easiest way to do that is to have the, the seller, put, once they're in contract, is to move forward on another property and drop the contingency. So that seems to
2: be the best way that I've gone about doing it. Yes. Um, if so if you don't find a place right away, your fallback position could be to rent short-term while you keep looking, as we just talked about. A period of renting might give you an opportunity to test drive an otherwise unfamiliar neighborhood and to seriously consider your next move. How many, how many of your buyers out there or your sellers actually have done this? I mean we understand that the issues with not wanting to do it, it's, it's expensive, You know, sometimes moving twice – but do you ever run into people who want to test drive, as we say, the marketplace and find out what may be available out there? Or just mm-hmm. because it's easier to go from a sale, you know, calm down a bit, and then identify a new property? Do any of you have personal experience with that with your client set?
0: I actually have two buyers that are doing that right now. Um, both of them didn't want to have that contingency and they were high-end properties, but they really needed it to sell. So now they feel like they could take a breath, look at things, especially with the fall market starting and new inventory coming on the market, and they don't feel like they're rushed. So, yes, they took short-term rentals, but not super short-term. They gave themselves a little more leeway, so if they do find the place, they don't have to rush to paint and do anything that needs to be done as well.
2: Another option is post-closing possession whereby you sell and close on your current home and then become a tenant of the new owner at a market rent for a finite period of time. Now, we know that most attorneys do not like this option at all. Comments, why is this a problem? It does seem to make sense. In fact, I'm doing that right now with one of my sellers. Uh, We are going for a close I think in mid-October and he wants to stay in the apartment. I think it's for two weeks, maybe three until the apartment we just sold him is ready and able to close. And it seems to be going fine. But again, a lot of attorneys are against it. A lot of, you know, buyers who buy apartments don't want that post-closing possession. Why is this a problem? Again, for our listening audience out there who doesn't necessarily understand the dynamics of the New York marketplace, the Manhattan marketplace.
7: Well, first and foremost, Vince, the fact that um, in New York, laws are very much renter friendly versus landlord-friendly. Uh, also one of the problems that, and probably one of the major concerns is, you know, if, if a buyer has done, a, you know, who is now going to be the landlord has done a walkthrough prior to closing and made sure that everything was sort of in order the way they wanted it to be and agreed to close, if there is the current owner still utilizing the space for a month, two months, four months, whatever it may be, Um, You know, you don't know what condition the apartment is going to be, in at the end, and granted, contracts and everything else that they've signed between the two, whether it's a lease or whatever other additional riders and agreements that they have, uh, the fact of the matter is it, it is definitely taking on additional hassle, and most people just want to be as free and clear as possible versus take on that sort of an added aggravation Um, because really, I mean, people are spending a lot of money and, you know, they're already sort of stressed about making such a big decision in their life. And this is just something that adds to it all.
2: All right. So I guess it's safe to say that, you know, when you're selling an apartment, it makes sense to be able to find that new one, close on the old one. Close on the new one and try and get those uh, those closings aligned you know day or two apart, but you know sometimes they, they, it doesn 't work out that way sometimes it 's a week or two, even three and you know it 's always a struggle when you 're talking to these people, whether it 's a post close possession agreement whether it 's you know just a, a quick you know, hotel stay or sometimes it 's just move out with family and then move back into the new apartment so in these deals here in Manhattan, it never is easy. Um, but we struggle to get both ends of the deal done. How many times, though? You know, I, I I don't like it because you don't get you know two opportunities here. But sometimes you sell an apartment for a seller, and they are moving out of the city, and it makes a lot it makes it a lot easier for us to to handle that transaction. Anyway, brokers are trying to talk you into selling. How to make sure you're getting the best deal? So, real estate agents have long used letters and phone calls to fish for listings. I think everybody has done this. That's for apartments. Their clients want or if they're not on the market, you know, they're trying to get them on the market and with the supply of available apartments failing to meet buyers insatiable demands, not to mention the brokers competing for any and every potential listing. The tactic is becoming increasingly common, especially if you're in a desirable neighborhood. As an owner, think of where you've probably gotten one of these unsolicited letters offering a market value opinion on your apartment or a solicitation of your particular unit because one of your buyers is seeking that particular line in the building What do you do as an apartment owner in these cases? So you live in a condo. Let's use a condo as an example. You live in a condo and you get probably seven to ten letters per week from brokers across the companies wanting to list your apartment because, A, they have a buyer for it or, B, they're just looking to bring on listings. How, in your opinion, are sellers or people that you know living in these buildings, how are they handling this barrage of what I call fish mail?
6: I can tell you from personal experience that I've, that sellers are receptive. There is, I think they understand that there's little inventory. Um, out in the market right now, and I've sent a couple. I'm working with a number of buyers, and once we've identified a, a building, for example, and we've and there's no inventory where it all gets gobbled up. You know, I find out what line that my buyer likes, and then I attack it with letters. And I've been I, as of late, I've seen relative success where you know owners who perhaps would be considering moving out of town, they're saying, "Look, if you can get me this number, I don't want to put it on the market," and you know, I bring legitimate buyers by. And, uh, you know, we haven't necessarily made a deal yet, but I know deals happen um, like that, and owners are receptive.
2: All right, guys, we're going to go to break. We'll be back in a few seconds, so don't go away.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. We're ready now. Visit blue-realtygroup.com. That's b l u Group.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at com. That's vrocco
2: at com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. So we were just talking before break about... What I call fish mail, and if you live in condos and co ops uh, you get lots of mail you know on a weekly basis from brokers who are trying to you know get apartments uh, on the market uh, because they either have clients who want to buy in that particular line or they're just looking to get any apartment to put up for a listing so say for example, a seller bites okay and they call you and they ask you to come in and talk to them so when you're picking a broker to sell your co-op or condo, it's easy to get your head turned, you know, by polished marketing pitches and flattering sales estimates and the way somebody looks, et cetera. But the smart seller is gonna want to know the answer to the following questions. And then the, the the first one, you know, that comes to mind is, why are you in real estate? You know, how many of you have gotten that question, why are you in real estate? I actually just got that this year, you know, I've gotten it before, but it had been a very long time. So what's the right answer? to that question. I mean, you know, I know I can tell you a bad answer is oh, I love people, oh, it's simple and you know, blah blah blah, it drives me, it inspires me, whatever. I mean, that's just too cliche. What is the right answer for why are you in real estate? Anybody?
0: I think the sellers or potential sellers want to know that you're serious about this. This isn't a hobby for you. It's not something you're doing to have a little extra pocket money. They want to make sure that you are focused on them. So I know myself, I'm in real estate because I used to be a real estate paralegal. I hated most of the brokers I dealt with. And I said, I could do this so much better. I could service people so much better. People always laugh when they hear that, but it's
2: true. (laughs) <laughs> well, it is true I, I I agree with that, and you know here's another one that says, you know give me an example of a time when you told your client something they didn 't want to hear. I think a lot of times we as brokers think that we have to be so nice all the time and not really deliver bad news or news that the seller doesn't want to hear, but actually, the seller wants to hear everything good and bad. I have one currently right now we 've done many transactions together, and i 'm very upfront, very straight with them all the time. Price is wrong, price is too high. You know, place, you know, doesn't show well, but in this case it shows brilliantly well. But, you know, I'm not afraid to tell these people exactly what they need to hear because I think at the end of the day, if you're not honest with them and upfront with them, you lose the respect and they're certainly not going to want to trust what you tell them. Have any of you had examples of that? Because, again, we talk about trust a lot on this program and in this particular um, profession. It is about trust. But they need to know that you're giving them the straight and the skinny, or it doesn't fly. How many of you I have? You have had-
5: I think you you have to show enthusiasm, and you have to start with the good, and then you you prove to your uh, potential client that you know what you're talking about. So recently, I I went to meet somebody, and and a, and we all know this. A lot of brokers come in, they give them a really high number, but they don't base it on anything, and then you don't get the listing because some other broker said a really high number. You have to really – you have to convey it's a strong market, but you also have to point out the maintenance is really high. In this case, it was a very high maintenance, and the building required 40 percent down, which affects your price. And I don't know if they, they knew that, but I don't know if they understood the correlation in the two variables.
2: You know, here's another one too. You know, uh, they, someone recently asked me, you know, so w- you, when was the last time you made a mistake with a client and how did you fix it? That's a good question because none of us want to sit there and admit that we made a mistake and then have to go back and say, well, this is this is what I did and this is how I fixed it. But you know, one of the things that quickly comes to mind is or that I answered this particular person was, listen, the mistake I made was I agreed to list the property at a price that I knew was too high. And how did I fix it? I lowered the price. Ultimately, over time, when the seller was comfortable after weeks and weeks on the marketplace in a hot market that we weren't getting any bites or any hits on the listing. So – how many of us have experienced that, or other mistakes that we were able to rectify or fix for our clients, and then be able to you know not proudly but you know honestly admit these things to you know new sellers when they interview us because these questions you know it's interesting to me i'm finding more and more uh, sellers that you meet because of the competitive nature of this business and the the lack of inventory and way too many brokers out there with not too much to do. Sellers are interviewing many more brokers than they ever did before, so you need to be on your game and you need to be upfront and honest. How do you handle that question? Will you are you honest with them and tell you what's wrong?
6: I agree with you Vince. I had that exact situation and I think it goes back to the, to the last question is is being transparent with your with your seller and telling them what they don't want to hear. I mean, they you know they want to hear that you made a mistake, but then they also want to hear the feedback, right, of what happened. And with their own property, they want to know if it's not showing well, if it needs to be staged, if um, you know they need to be less involved in the process or or more involved. Because we all know you know the, the sellers who are super involved sometimes it's hurtful to the situation. So being able to be transparent is is really important with at the end of the day, learning how to say, hey, I made a mistake here, but you know, this is how I fixed it. And being transparent on both ends um, for past examples and with your current seller is very important.
2: Yeah, I agree and well said. And, and here's another one. Why should I sell now or should I just hold out for a little bit? So what is, what is your take, Mr. Broker, on the current economic environment and market dynamics? You're telling me that you want my listing, you want to take my listing, this is the right time. Why? Uh, you know, that that's a big question and that's a very big answer. But you know what? You need to have the right answer for this seller again because they are out there interviewing many more brokers than they normally would in a normal marketplace. This is a very important question. What do you tell them about the current economic conditions in New York City today?
7: Well, I mean – a little bit of what Jeff brought up in his conversation earlier, um, I think that we really did have a very low supply for the last you know year or two years, and as a result, we saw these crazy prices in the market. but you know there really is a very segmented story going on in the marketplace as far as you know what what parts of the market are moving strongly, which ones are how long they will remain strong and the fact of the matter is is that our sales cycles and ups and downs in the sales cycles are becoming faster and faster uh, so what we can really speak to to our, our sellers is really from the standpoint of what's going on right now what's been going on and the truth right now is that in the last few months market certainly has slowed in my opinion um, so you know, given that, um, and given that it is still a great time to sell, but maybe the prices are already seeming to, not prices, but at least, at least demand seems to be not as high as, as it was just six months ago, um, this may be the time to get in because I can't predict the future. I wish I had a crystal ball. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, the market can slow down a bit. And so right now, while it's still pretty strong, it would be a good time to sell.
2: Parul, is this this the same conversation that you would have with a studio seller and, say, a three-bedroom seller or, you know, a penthouse, you know, magnificent uh, rooftop-type seller, or is it a different conversation per price point?
7: That's such a good point that you bring up, Vince, and that's a fit, and I think that is why, precisely, this is a really big question uh, because it depends. It depends on where you're living, what sort of apartment it is, and your strategy is going to be different. Uh, given what, not only what are they selling, but also what their circumstances are. If they are a buyer and a seller, you know, depending on what price point and which neighborhoods they're looking to buy in, it might, and they don't want to rent in between, as we spoke of, a lot of people don't want to do that double move. And the answer might be different. And the fact of the matter is is that my point of view is, is get people to trust you in the long term because just to focus on short-term gain, to get them to sell this apartment right now, may not be working in their best interest, but I believe that if you speak the truth and qualify it and get them to understand where you're coming from, that long-term trust wins with more people than than it loses.
2: Well said. I grew up in corporate America, and I sold technology for 20 years. And you know, way back 20 years ago, well, more than that, value-add was a very big to-do in Corporate life, well, when we were out talking to customers, CEOs of companies, cFOs of companies, you know whoever our customer was, and I worked with big fortune five hundred customers as an IBM salesperson, you know we always needed to find what our value add was in order to convince our buyer our corporate purchaser, that our solutions were the best, or my solutions, Vince Roccos solutions were the best for his corporation. Here we are in the world of real estate, and all we hear is value add to selling a home. How do you tell your prospective sellers when you're being interviewed that you have the value add that's needed for the complete the the successful completion of this transaction? Because again, we're being interviewed um, all the time for for what used to be an easy, you know, easy get. Now there are many other brokers out there vying for the same listings. What is your value add and how do you explain this to a prospective seller? Again, very big question and probably a very big answer. Niall, what but do you think I about think that?
7: I think that's why it's so important to be the broker who is well-carried, well-spoken, really genuinely cares about their client, um, knows the market, knows the product, um, keeps up with all the information and data out there that the buyer or seller has access to and more to stay ahead of of who it is that we are serving. But I think it is all those components that truly add value for the client. And I think that today's buyer and seller are pretty savvy. I mean, I've now had buyers who are interviewing me before hiring me. People I've known for years saying, well, should I work with you or should I work with somebody else? And I actually think that's really smart Um but they're so well-educated that you have to do your work and hold your own. And, you know, to what Deborah was saying earlier, what got me into the industry was this idea of I don't know if I see most brokers being as qualified or polished or really know what they're doing. Um, I think in today's market, um, you know, this is not – this industry is changing rapidly, and I feel that unless you are somebody who can be sort of all those things and really show your client that you can be – you know, a value added, you put it, um, that you're not going to get the job.
2: I agree. And, you know, we're running out of time. I've got about a minute left, but I just wanted to bring up two other points. Sellers ask often how you track the activity on their property, and how often should I as the agent be in contact with them? And lastly, what is um, the broker's philosophy on co-broking and working with other brokers in general? I've gotten that more often than not lately. Anyway, on next week's show, Good Morning New York will pay tribute to the 13th anniversary of the September 11th American tragedy. My special guest is Edie Lutnick, whose brother Howard Lutnick was and is the CEO of Candor Fitzgerald. They lost their entire company, including brother Gary in the tragedy, and Edie will be here to talk about that and about the foundation that she heads up that is giving meaning to the lives of the victims of 9-11. I will also share with you my personal story. This is an American story, an American tragedy. Until next time, thank you for joining me, and I look forward to being with you next Tuesday morning at 9 Eastern, 6 Pacific, live on the Variety Channel here on Voice America. You can always catch the show later in the day on podcast or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. Have a great week, everybody, and talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.